everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Amateur Altours. You can follow us on Twitter at AltoursPod or email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. This week, I am pleased to welcome back good friend of the show, Mike Scott. So Mike joined me for an episode of What Am I Missing not too long ago, and I had an absolute blast talking to him then. And it was so much fun, and I couldn't think of anyone better for this week's topic at hand. So first off, Mike, how are you doing? And welcome back to the show. I'm good, man. I'm happy to be back here. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, and likewise. And, and so the reason, I'll just cut right to it. The reason I wanted you on the show today and is that this is... Amateur Outdoors first foray into Quentin Tarantino, like really in-depthly. I kind of briefly talked about him with uh, Dana Buckler back, I think it was last June, like right when I first met him and, and he came onto my show. But that was very general and broad and we just kind of mentioned him and we just kind of moved on. But why I want to focus on Quentin Tarantino, and I think everyone will know, and so a few weeks ago, I saw Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I definitely had some opinions. I had a, an episode with Brian, I'm sure. Hopefully everyone's listened to that one, so you know my opinions. But at the at that time of my first watching, none of my like main movie buff friends and fellow podcasters had seen the film. So I quickly reached out to both you and Dana Buckler and asked if you guys had seen the film, and if not, just text me when you had. And both of you did. And you and your response got my attention very quickly because Dana did an episode on it, and and I listened to that and 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 that helped me process the film a little bit more. But your response last week got me thinking: I got to have Mike on the show. Like this, this is going to be an awesome episode. So, like I said, Brian and I have talked about this film already, but to and I'm probably going to repeat a lot of what I said, but to avoid having two similar episodes very like released at once i figured we should put context to this film tarantino and our opinions of tarantino his filmography and once upon a time in hollywood so i have a list of general questions and mike like i said all fair your film historian perspective will probably be a lot better than mine here which is another reason why i wanted you on the show for this particular episode. So I definitely have some general questions and we'll just first start off with, I I think a a nice easy one. What are your general thoughts on Tarantino? By and large, I I really like him. Um, I think in a lot of ways, he's a director I respect almost more than I like because one of the things that I do like most about his movies is I think almost all of his movies are messy. Um, you know, contrast him with, say, take somebody like David Fincher, who's almost mathematically precise in how he makes good movies. Um, Tarantino's movies are messy. They're sloppy. There's always things going on in them. You know, I'm not sure that there's a Tarantino movie that I, I would say is top to bottom perfect or exceptional. Almost every single one of his movies has things that I'm kind of like, yeah, I really wish he didn't do that or didn't have that in there. But I also think that's what makes him so interesting because he is such a unique voice. Um, Even though his voice is a lot of an amalgamation of his influences, it's such a unique voice that I think his movies are always interesting and always worth watching. But there's certainly ones I like more than others. I'm not by any means a diehard like Tarantino acolyte, um, but I think there's a lot to talk about with all of his movies yeah definitely and and my thoughts are very similar and i think it's interesting you know 
we are a little bit have a, we do have a little bit of a generational gap and i'm very interested to see how we both respond to this film um i mean i think brian and i are a little bit of an outliers in our generation with just the amount of film and the types of film that we watch and having this podcast but i i kind of had that initial or my relationship with tarantino is being exposed at a young age probably a little bit earlier than i should have but still being really receptive to it and then he was my favorite director as a teenager. Like, I, and it was just all, the, it's kind of like that superficial stuff that you see in a Tarantino film, like the violence, the, the witty dialogue, the gripping story and the characters, like all of that I loved in my teenage mind. I still remember when Django came out, that was my first Tarantino experience in the theater. I think I saw it four times in the theater. First time I saw it with my parents and my mom, hates violence but even she was like okay that was a really good movie like i really did enjoy that and and especially the violence in that film and and the topic the topics that he is able to get across in his film and that he explores but now that i'm a little older i not that i want to say become a little bit more jaded towards tarantino like you said his films are just these you could really tell what influences him and i think he really borders that line of paying homage and complete ripoff copying. And I can't really, cause sometimes I'm like, oh, that's definitely homage. And now I'm like, okay, you're just straight up ripping right from any movies and it's kind of distasteful, but he really goes back and forth. I, I, but I definitely still really enjoy his work. Love him as an artist. I don't really like him as a person, but I love his, his artistic vision and just the pure passion that he brings to his films. And regardless if you love or hate his films, you have to admit, he is 110% driven to make the film that he's making at that time. So I got to at least respect him for that. Well, and you hit it kind of on the head that he was your favorite director when you were a teenager. He's almost like baby's first auteur, right? <laughs> like to a certain extent, he's, he's a gateway drug to a lot of people as they're getting into film because his influences are so broad. He's like a crash course in film history. Um, and, and when you're younger, you know, so I, as you said, we do have a generation gap, but I mean, I was in high school when Reservoir Dogs came out. That movie changed my fucking life when that <laughs> thing came out. Right. And so like, I get it. And I think for a lot of people, that's exactly the perfect entry point for Tarantino is when you're in high school because you're, you're kind of a sponge and you're just the most amenable to taking in what he's trying to sell. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, that that's kind of what makes him perfect as a gateway to sort of other directors and especially sort of other auteurs like, Kubrick or, you know, some of those guys, uh, Michael Mann, people like that. He's a great gateway to those guys. Um, so I think he's perfect for that. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that now, I guess we can kind of get into that film, like historian perspective of Tarantino. I want to ask you as for the episode and for myself, what was the atmosphere of the indie film genre pre-Tarantino? You mentioned that Reservoir Dogs came out when you were in high school. Now, I don't know when you started that, your, your fascination with film, and maybe that, like, it's, it's kind of very similar with me. Like, in high school, this is when it clicks, and start, and you start investigating more and more. But you might, you, Mike, might have a little bit more to say about what was that indie film genre like before Tarantino? Because that was the, st I think Tarantino was the start of this era of filmmaking, which 
an era, these, this idea of, of eras and, and legacies, I think is going to come up later in this discussion with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But so what was that atmosphere of film like before Tarantino and like immediately after, like especially in the 90s? Sure. So, well, and I'm actually especially lucky because for those who don't know, um, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm from the home of the Sundance Film Festival. So I was here in high school during the indie boom of the 90s. And so Tarantino is part of a wave that really happened. It started, most people, myself included, trace it to 1989 with the Sundance premiere of Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, But then immediately after that, we got Reservoir Dogs. We got Kevin Smith's Clerks. We got Ed Burns' Brothers McMullen. We just, we had this whole boom of indie filmmakers Uh, coming out and and really changing the way the business was done. And and on top of that, unfortunately, we also have to acknowledge that that was when Miramax and the Weinsteins also came to power because they recognized this indie boom was going on and really were at the forefront of releasing a lot of these movies. I mean, almost every one of of these sort of major indie movies was released by Miramax. And so it it was a really interesting creative time, especially as a movie fan. And so Reservoir Dogs came out in 92. I'd have been 15 when I first saw it and and really starting to develop. I had always been in movies or always been into movies because that's kind of what I did with my parents. But this was when I was starting to develop my own interests. And so it was a really creative, interesting time to to kind of be into movies. Um, And certainly it changed things. That five to 10 year period of we'll just call it the nineties really sort of changed how movies were done for a long time. And it was kind of the last great sort of indie movement because now a lot of indie movies go straight to streaming or stuff like that. Um, But an indie movie, a movie that was made for $2 million could actually get a wide release um, and that was kind of something that we don't see today. So it was, it was a really interesting time to be a movie fan. Hmm, yeah. And, and I was actually watching a video today. Um, I think it was from BBC. They were interviewing Tarantino just about his legacy and how, how he perceives his legacy and what it's like when he sees just like a random, uh, one of like a random pop culture reference that he helped bring back to light. And it just, it was interesting seeing his response to it. Cause like, Oh, I'm in Shrek. That's when you, that's when you know you've made it when you just when you're in Trek. But the last question was like, what do you like? What are your final thoughts about like to your fans? And he's like, thank you for coming along for the ride. He's like, I'm not done yet. But you know, he's like, I've been doing this for like over 25 years. And it's I mean, just with being involved in film. And he's like, you know, there's some people that come up to me and say, you know, I was there from the beginning. There were some that have that have been born into the world where I always existed. And that's where I fit into that category. And it's, and it's interesting now that I'm getting older and actually looking from this perspective of, you know, this, this film history, just the impact that he has had. It's just profound in these last, you know, few decades. So, so what was now, I know you mentioned earlier with Reservoir Dogs, it changed your life, but in what way? So what was your, like that impression? Like, was this something you saw and you're like, this is a game changer. Like film will never be the same once like 
after this and it's it's not so much with the movement but like with this film in particular just like all right like filmmaking's changing what was your impression when you first saw reservoir dogs i can't say that for like the industry i recognized that film was never going to be the same but it reservoir dogs came out at a perfect time for me because it was also right around when i was discovering uh, for people that listen to the Dana Buckler show or follow me on Twitter, John Woo is my favorite director. I'm a big Hong Kong, especially Hong Kong new wave of the eighties, big Hong Kong movie fan. And that was really when I was discovering at the same time and Reservoir Dogs is heavily influenced more than any other movie Tarantino's done by those late eighties Hong Kong crime films. In fact, he wholesale lifts parts from a movie called City on Fire. And so for me, when I saw Reservoir Dogs, I knew that for me, film was changing because this style of filmmaking that I was already getting into, I was starting to see now in Reservoir Dogs, oh, it's, it's made the jump. It's now, and, and I'm seeing a different type of filmmaking and a different type of energy and, and something that sort of combines the grittiness of 70s filmmaking with the propulsiveness of 80s filmmaking. And so for me, I knew film had changed. I knew when I saw Reservoir Dogs, I was seeing a new talent that I was going to follow wherever he wanted to lead me. And that more or less has been the case. I mean, like you said, Mike, you came in kind of, you know, Tarantino sort of always existed for you. I grew up, I mentioned this on Dana's show when we talked about Clerks, you know, I grew up with Kevin Smith. I grew up with Quentin Tarantino. Like I've gotten older as these guys have gotten older. So they've sort of been a part of my life, which is why I've had such different opinions on them as I've gone through my life, some high, some low, all of that. But I, what I can tell you, and it's a big part of the reason that I still will typically say Reservoir Dogs is still my favorite Tarantino movie because I can't, I have been watching every one of his movies trying to chase that high that I got the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs. And it's not a high that you can chase. You know, you, you'll hmm. spend, we're movie fans because we're always chasing those highs, right? Yeah, exactly. and, and we never can, can replicate them. But um, for me, it was very clearly a major new voice and a major new talent. Um, and then as I started following him, I realized that I wasn't alone in thinking that. But really, Pulp Fiction was the one when that came out where I knew that cinema had changed. Yeah. And that was in, in Pulp Fiction was my first, I guess like that was my first Tarantino film, but that was, it's, it's funny. Like a lot of these classic films that I've been exposed to have been out of order or just through bits of, of memory and seeing random scenes sporadically through my life. And then when I get older, I pursue them. So like Pulp Fiction, I remember I was, it was, I forget how old I was must have been maybe like 10 or so and my sister was in high school and and she and and, it, and we were with her and her boyfriend at the time and we were at his house and he said oh i want to like show you some movies so he showed us he showed us the blob which another movie that is very shocking for a 10 year old to see the remake the remake with uh with frank darabont's fingerprints all over it but then and then we watched the bonnie situation and that's at the end of the film, but I'm like, there, and we had no context of what was going on, but I was enraptured by, by what was happening on screen. And then I think we watched the beginning of the film 
So we watched the Bonnie situation and then the Honey Bunny uh, restaurant, you know, going back and forth, mm-hmm. pumpkin scene. And then I was like, you know, I got to watch this movie. And then this, how I watch movies back in the day, this YouTube was, was, you know, just up and coming. I think it was like only a few years old. And I put in like Pulp Fiction part one or whatever. And I eventually watched the whole film in just searching through, um, just th- searching through YouTube. And I was enamored by this film. Like this was my favorite film for a long time. Like I said, when I was growing up and especially as a teenager and, and it, it I just, it, and that is the game changer. And, and Tarantino is another, another director that so many people are trying to copycat, whether it's the witty dialogue, the unorthodox storytelling, the cinematography, the style, the soundtrack, most notably, especially in this time, I think like Boondock Saints, like that, like if you see a film that wants to be like Tarantino, it's, it's that film and it, and, and that's another film all in its own. Like it could have been, but the, but the director completely ruined it. But, um, yeah, agreed. But yeah, and that's that's another interesting story. That's like I think Dana should do a deep dive on that one. That's like fascinating with that. But anyway, like back to Pulp Fiction, it just and it's and it's so it's it's amazing watching like this is when you know this isn't a fluke. It's is it like that that sophomore effort sometimes not as great as like the first one. Like I think of Damien Chazelle from coming off of that ultra high of Whiplash going into La La Land and that I don't think those films are in the same caliber. Great excellent examples of filmmaking but just they're la la land is not whiplash and i don't even think it's on the same level as whiplash but you know coming in from reservoir dogs he you know he hit like um he he smacked that thing now with he he hit a home run with reservoir dogs now with pulp fiction he smacked that into uh, into the he hit this ball to the moon like pulp fiction i think is the quintessential tarantino film that everyone has to go to when you when you say Tarantino I think most people will think Pulp Fiction yeah I I agree it's actually one of those that's so you know it's funny when I think of Pulp Fiction now I always kind of think of it's not actually one of my favorite Tarantino movies and the only reason for that is because the movie was such a game changer and it did become so instantly a part of pop culture that um, it's kind of one of those things where it almost, it's almost hard to, to even appreciate it as a movie now because I've lived with the movie so long, you know, and I wrote out that wave of this shitty Pulp Fiction knockoffs, Boondock <laughs> Saints, things to do in Denver when you're dead, eight heads in a duffel bag, two days in a valley. Like it's all these, all these movies that tried to replicate his style but didn't actually understand what made him him. And I think going back to what I said earlier, when I said he's such a unique voice, and that's the thing, you can't replicate his style because he is so much Quentin Tarantino. He is who he is and his movies are every bit of that. His, his blood, his DNA, it's throughout all of his movies. And you just can't replicate that because you're not Quentin Tarantino. And so you're never going to actually be able to replicate that. You can do something different, which like his, uh, his co-writer on Pulp Fiction, Roger Avery, made a couple of movies that fall into that category, but they're different. Like Rules of Attraction is different. It's still a Tarantino wannabe, but Avery has enough of a distinct voice that it's different. Um, but yeah, it, Pulp Fiction was huge. I mean, it was a game changer. It was, you know, I happened to be lucky enough 
to be working at Blockbuster Video when Pulp Fiction came out, which was like the best time imaginable to be working at a Blockbuster, right? Mm-hmm. To, to get to talk with people about this movie and be mad that Forrest Gump beat it at the Oscars and yeah. shit like that, you know? Um, so like, it's a game changer. It's one I actually need to go back and revisit because I, I kind of, st- I've probably seen, I don't even know how many times I've seen it, but I kind of stopped watching it because it just became old hat to me which is not fair to the movie that's not the movie's fault the movie is absolutely brilliant and it is i think when tarantino's done and we're 30 years down and doing critical reassessments of his career it's the one that i still legitimately think is going to stand above all others because every other movie he's done is in some way building on what he did in pulp fiction yeah, and that's that's a good point. Now, like Pulp Fiction also isn't my favorite Tarantino film. It's a close second, and we'll get to my favorite one a little bit down the road. But I think it's here when we start to see this is like kind of sets the tone for what the rest of Tarantino's films are going to be like. And this is the film that everyone's going to compare every other film to is how does it compare to Pulp Fiction, which I don't think is necessarily fair, but it, but I think this is when we start to see those, those very, those director trademarks, like the chapters, the trunk shots, the, the, the sweeping cinematography, the very, the awesome utilization of the soundtrack, uh, witty dialogue. This is when we start seeing the Tarantino stereotypes or, or tropes, and if you will. Don't forget the obsession with women's feet because women's this is feet when that and first swearing. <laughs> And yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that's not really at all in actually, it's not at all in Reservoir Dogs. So yeah, this is when we start getting the, the, the foot fetish shots in there. But this is when we start seeing those tropes. But I want to ask you after this film, how do you see his progression? Because the follow up film, I mean, I guess if you want to count his segment in Four Rooms and, and the writing with True Romance and, and Natural Born Killers, but it, more of his director or his directing. Uh, next, the follow up was Jackie Brown. And I think this is the film that a lot of people are extremely mixed on because it's not, I mean, following Pulp Fiction is no easy task. I mean, they said the same thing about Reservoir Dogs and then he did it. But I I think Jackie Brown is that, is that interesting quandary where people are, it's suddenly, it's not universally praised to be this amazing film. I mean, I think it's an absolutely amazing film. I'm, I'm one of, I'm on the side of, I absolutely love Jackie Brown. But and I think in today's day and age, now that we've had some time to process it, like well over 20 years to process the film, I think people are starting to appreciate the film and for what it is. But, you know, it took a little while to get there. So I guess in regards to Jackie Brown and moving on to, you know, Kill Bill and excuse me, Kill Bill, Death Proof, Glorious Bastards, like where do you see his progression after Pulp Fiction? Because I think there definitely is that progression do you think he's maturing as an artist or do you think he's kind of not that he's a one-trick pony but do you think he's just doing this he's doing something different with his films but also they're different but the same and that's kind of how I view Tarantino what what are your thoughts on that well so Jackie Brown's really I think it's it's an interesting point because in his career because I think it's the pivotal point um I think Jackie Brown's fantastic. I think it's, you know, I think it's the closest to, and obviously we'll talk about 
Hollywood later, but I think it's the closest in vibe to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but it's also the one movie he's made that's based entirely on somebody else's writing. It's based on Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. And uh, it came out right around Out of Sight, which is also a great Elmore Leonard adaptation. And it's completely different from Pulp Fiction. It's a much more uh, low-key, kind of languidly paced movie, right? There's not uh, big action scenes and there's not crazy things going on. And it got pretty decent critical reviews, but it did not have the box office or the response that Pulp Fiction did. And I, I don't want to speak for Quentin Tarantino. I don't know him. I've never talked to the man. But I think Jackie Brown, because I know that was a passion project for him. Jackie Brown was, was a movie he had wanted to make uh, ever since he started making movies. And I think it's sort of muted reception. Kind of, it affected him. Because what we started seeing was him digging into you know, we get in Pulp Fiction, we get, and I guess I should say to people, you know, we are going to have spoilers in this. We can't talk about the movies without having some spoilers. You know, we get Uma Thurman getting a, a syringe through her chest and it's a big shocking scene. And so then we get after Jackie Brown, which has relatively few types of scenes like that. We get, you know, Kill Bill, which is nothing but action and blood and shocking scenes and stuff like that. I think Jackie Brown kind of, it, it disappointed and scared him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so he sort of fell back a little bit on what was safe. And, and a movie we'll talk about a little later that is a, another Tarantino movie that I love, Hateful Eight. I feel like Jackie Brown and Hateful Eight are two of my favorite Tarantino movies because they're two movies where he tries to do something different and both of them weren't as well received as his other movies. And so I think when that kind of happens, he gets gun shy a bit. And so I think from Jackie Brown, we see a change in the type of movies he's making to where he's making these much more over the top, fantastical, uh, violent, bloody, uh, off the wall comedy kind of movies that we're seeing. And I, I really do wonder if the audiences had turned out for Jackie Brown the way they turned out for Pulp Fiction, what kind of Quentin Tarantino movies we would see, we would be seeing today 20 years later. That's a, that's a very interesting point because I think Kill Bill is like both volumes are very interesting case studies because that all makes sense because I think Kill Bill volume one that is the appetizer for me, at least. Like I watch Kill Bill Volume One for completely different reasons. Why I watch Volume Two? Volume One, I mean, it's it's helps set up the story and 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 it shows more of that 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 style that Tarantino has. But I think it really focuses on that hyper violence, st stylized violence, and really, this is where I'm like, all right, Tarantino is just kind of like masturbating on screen. That's like, look at everything that I know how to do. And I have to admit, it is entertaining as fuck. Like when he, when they're, when she's taking on the crazy 88s, that is awesome. Like that violence is so stylized and it's so crisp and fresh that it's just, it's so much fun to watch. But to me, like volume, and it's been a little while since I've seen volume one. So I, I mean, I might have to revisit it and maybe it might change, but I just remember feeling like this is really fun to watch 
But like now let's get on the volume two. Let's get this story kicking on the gear. Cause then volume two comes around and it's really full. I mean, there's violence in the film, but it's definitely toned down from volume one. Lots, lot more dialogue, lots more. Um, Uma Thurman's character is there, but there's a lot more screen time with Michael Madsen and this character of Bill. We're seeing all these relationships and, and there's a lot more plot development. And I think what you said about the ter- the poor turnout for Jackie Brown, Tarantino needed to say, "Hey, there's a reason you love me. This is and this is why. Now let's come back for the story." That's kind of how I view Kill Bill. But again, I also really enjoy the Kill Bill films. They're more in the if I were to rank them, like all the Tarantino films, Kill Bill, the Kill Bills would definitely be in the middle. And I think I even did on Dana's show when he had Jim Hempel on, like I think last summer. Uh, I I sent a tweet out and I ranked the films and I, and I, and they're still all relatively the same ranking. And I think they're, I ranked the kill bills uh, like five and six or four and five it was the right in the middle of the pack. Yeah. I, I actually agree with you completely, you know, uh, kill bill volume one, to be honest with you, when I saw it in the theater, I saw it opening day as I typically do with Tarantino movies uh, up until the last two, the last two I didn't see opening day, but um I actually didn't like volume one all that much. And I'm the martial arts guy. Like I should have liked it, but it really did feel like the most mainstream kind of populist of all of Tarantino's movies. It did feel sort of like, okay, well you, you turn down my blaxploitation homage. That's also sort of this languid character study of, of, people in middle age trying to figure out where to go. So I'm just going to give you this kick-ass wuxia film. I mean, I'm going to bring in Yuen Wu motherfucking Ping to do the choreography for this. I'm going to cast Gordon Liu. Like, I'm going to do all of this. And I thought it was a lot of sort of sound and fury signifying nothing. Then Volume 2 came out, and... I liked volume two so goddamn much that it actually retroactively made me like volume one better because volume two, I think is so what Tarantino actually wanted to do with Kill Bill, right? He, that's where all the character work comes in and we don't have this crazy fight with the crazy 88s, but I will take that fight between Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah in the trailer over anything that happens in volume one. That fight is intense. It's nasty. It's unbelievably well choreographed because they're in this tight space. Like, and it comes from character. Like the character work that makes that fight matter is there. You know, it's like even the, the final fight with Bill is really short, but the buildup to it makes it so satisfying. I've heard some people disagree with that. I, I think that fight is so satisfying because it's everything about it is built up to in that movie. Um, so I love volume two. I feel like volume two was him kind of getting it was Quentin getting his groove back. Uh, you know, volume one was what he needed to do to shake off the sort of the yips, the jitters from, from the reception to Jackie Brown. And then volume two was him getting his groove back. So I, I, I agree with you. I think volume two is incredible. Yeah. And uh, again, I completely agree with everything you said, and I'm going to transition. So you said he got his groove back and we've talked about this. I think this is actually what started 
th this next film is actually what had us going back and forth and actually, because before we just interact on Twitter uh, every now and again, but this, this next film is what we actually taught, like we actually DM'd each other and this started a conversation, which then said, which led to, hey, come on to the show, like you're awesome. And that is Death Proof. So, and I think if I, I may be, like, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys were talking about this on Dana's show and you said, I will defend Death Proof. And I said, that is a bold statement. And I, and I sent you uh, a DM and we talked about it, like, you know, very civilly. Like, I wasn't trying to pick a fight. I was just very curious on that statement because I, I'll just say right now, this is my least favorite Tarantino film for many reasons. But what are your thoughts on Death Proof? Because I feel like that this is definitely, definitely doing something new, but it's one of his first, like, I think, actual misfires as a director for many different reasons because it's weird because death proof is it's like i don't think it's 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 a very competently made bad film in my opinion i don't really like this film that much and i watched it last summer and thinking like okay i'll give it another shot watching it with my buddy and i'll and i'll go more into that after you but i watched it again and, and was like nope my thoughts on this have not changed since i was uh, 17 or 18 whenever I first saw it so yeah I I love death proof and I, I'm actually going to turn people towards because uh, as much as I enjoy being on these podcasts there are a lot smarter people talking about these movies than me um, and so I'm going to uh, encourage people to go to fthismovie.com and look up the article that Patrick Bromley wrote on Death Proof, because almost everything I say is going to be paraphrasing that, and he's much more articulate than me. Um, I love Death Proof. Now, part of the thing with Death Proof is Grindhouse as a whole is such a unique, interesting experiment, uh, because I don't know if you saw Grindhouse. Did you see Grindhouse in the theater, Mike? So that came out in... Oh seven. I, my parents, I may have seen some movies, but they were not with my parents. So I, I, I unfortunately did not see the grindhouse films in theaters, but I saw them DVD, maybe, uh, a few, maybe 2010, like if so, a few years later, because this was something that my parents definitely would not take me to see. Right. And they also, my dad might understand what grindhouse is, but my mom definitely this is like a lot of the films that I watch and I tell her about them. She's like, why do you watch that? Like, because they're great films, but she definitely would not be for, or she wouldn't understand it. And she definitely would not be about, she'd be like, what's a grindhouse? Like, is that, is that a meat trail? She'd think it's like a, she, she would probably think it's like a horror film or something, but she wouldn't understand the genre and the history of what grindhouse is. But in the, to answer your question, I did not see these in theaters. So the thing with the Grindhouse, and for those who don't know, uh, Grindhouse was a, a collaboration between Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez that was released in 2007. It was a, a double feature. It was released as a double feature, Rodriguez's Planet Terror, Tarantino's Death Proof, with fake trailers in the middle to kind of replicate being in an old drive-in or an old Grindhouse skid row theater in new york and um the movies are really meant to be watched together they they taken as separate entities and and for again for those who don't know they here in the u.s when they were first released on dvd or blu-ray they were released as separate director's cuts 
And I think the director's cuts are quite honestly of both movies vastly inferior to the versions that are in the three hour grindhouse experience. Uh, because what's added to the director's cuts, I don't think adds anything to the actual movies. What makes Death Proof so good as part of Grindhouse is Planet Terror is just ridiculous. It is a Resident Evil movie, essentially. And it's it's like all of Robert Rodriguez's movies. It's over the top. It's crazy. It's borderline incompetently put together. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun. And so then one of the things that people complain about with Death Proof is how slow it is to get going. But what you've got to realize is if you've been in a movie theater for two hours, that step down to kind of slow down and catch your breath is perfect. The other thing that I think is amazing about Death Proof in terms of Tarantino, I don't consider Tarantino to be the most self-aware cat on the face of the earth. Um, Death Proof is such an interesting statement for him to make. A man who has been accused of glorifying violence, glorifying violence against women, um, you know, glorifying uh, misogynistic attitudes. Death Proof is such an interesting take on toxic masculinity uh, and, and, and the way that Kurt Russell, look, if Kurt Russell's not in Death Proof, I don't know that the movie works as well as it does. Oh, of course, yeah, it would not work. But the way he completely folds when Rosario Dawson, Zoe Bell, and Tracy Toms actually stand up to him is one of my favorite things ever in any movie I've ever seen. Uh, when they actually take it to him and the way he just falls apart like a typical schoolyard bully is is something that I think Tarantino's never matched. Like a lot of Tarantino movies, like we talked about, Death Proof's not perfect. It's a mess. I think the first part maybe drags on a little too long. I like the dialogue. It's got a random Eli Roth cameo that's unnecessary. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of it that could be condensed, but I think what works in Death Proof works so goddamn well and is a much clearer thesis statement from Tarantino than we get from most of his movies. That's the reason I really love the movie. And I think those are extremely valid. I think ultimately for me, like my complaints, I don't really mind slow burns of a movie and I've only seen the director's cuts of both of those films. And, but I, I, my complaints aren't really that it's slow because I've seen some really awesome slow burn movies and, and, and that will definitely, that argument of slow burns and, and quote unquote, nothing happening will definitely come up again with once upon a time in Hollywood. But I, that never really was the issue for me. I was just like, there's nothing happening right now, but that with that being said, Kurt Russell is amazing. The last anything with the cars is awesome when spoiler alert when or when kurt russell takes out the the group of characters in the in the middle of the film that's spectacular that that's like such a shocking punch to the gut you're like oh my god it's kind of like a psycho moment because i wasn't expecting everyone to die in this car accident i was expecting to turn to a, a revenge film and then it doesn't. And then the end of the film, the very end, the, the, the last 10, 15 minute car, uh, car chase is incredible. Uh, Zoe Bell, 
I, I fell in love with her stunt work because I know she worked with Tarantino um, up from that point in here. And every time I see her in as cameos, I always have a little smile because I think she's just so adorable and she's such a badass woman. And so, like, you know, you got the sequence of her hanging on the car and she's actually hanging onto this car going like <laughs> like 70 miles an hour, just hanging on by belts. And it's like, incredible. And then, you know, when they actually bring it to him and I love it's it's just such a laugh out loud moment. Like they sh they shoot Kurt Russell and then all the characters are like, let's go fuck this guy up. Look, look at this motherfucker. Look at this pussy. And it's like so it's just this awesome cathartic release. And you're like, yeah. And you're with them. You're like, yeah, fuck Kurt Russell. And he's like, at one point, he's crying and apologizing. He's like, why? Why? It's he's like, like, why are you doing this to me? And they're like, fuck this pussy. Like, let's <laughs> fuck this guy up. And I'm like, yeah. And like, that's where I think this works. And like, they, you know, they just beat the shit out of him and they curb stomp him. And they're just like, yes. And then it's credits roll. And at that point, the movie almost wins me over. Like, like you said, it's like, that is worth it. But then I was watching the film with my buddy. And we get to the set. So the beginning is definitely that grindhouse feel with, you know, the, the artificial uh, film with like that. You can see the, 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 uh, the cigarette burns in the corner. Like the, the color scheme is like not quite right. It's a little like oversaturated at points, but it's like leading to that aesthetic of grindhouse. And then midway through the film, I don't, and I don't know if this is in the theatrical cut or if it's just the director's cut, but then it just suddenly switches and it doesn't want to be a Grindhouse film anymore. And I was like, oh, I wish you just stayed with that feel the whole time because it just doesn't work for me. And then I just feel like that introduction of all the characters and kind of, because now we're reintroducing new, what you might think are quote unquote victims of Kurt Russell's character. And I just think none of them are really, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know. I was just bored. <laughs> like there's that whole sequence of them in the coffee shop, uh, obviously paying homage and referencing the Reservoir Dogs coffee shop scene. But what was different was I was so bored by anything they were saying. I didn't care about anything that what they were saying. I was just like, this is obviously, well, to me, I was like, this is just paying back. It's, it's a less smart version of what's going on in, um, in in Reservoir Dogs. And oh, so, come on. Tracy Toms gets the best line in the entire movie in that scene when she tells Rosario Dawson, you know what happens to people that carry knives? Motherfuckers get shot. Like, like ah, But that's that. one, that's one, that's one line in, in this like 20 minute scene. And, and, and I was just like, oh my God. And so like when I was watching with my buddy, it was like me, my buddy and Brian, and we we're sitting there and we're just like, oh Jesus. And we're like, let's just get to the car chase. And we just skipped. And we even skipped when they when they like prostitute their friend to the uh, to the car set or to like the guy whose car they're. Yeah, trying that to doesn't do. work. I'm with you. That whole part doesn't work. And, and I was like, we just skipped like 20, 25 minutes of the movie, and you missed absolutely nothing. Like, and I was like, Zoe, like the the Australian is a badass chick. Um, like the, the driver, they're awesome. And the back when she's like kind of a wimp, but then she like, this is her scene where she comes out. And, and I was just like, that's why I don't like this film very much. It's just a lots of boring dialogue that, that doesn't go anywhere. doesn't progress that plot forward. This is where I think it's a little overindulgent on what Tarantino thinks is very smart dialogue when it's not. Although I think, with, with uh, which I think her name is uh, Rose McGowan in the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. I think all of that works 
way more because Kurt Russell is in the scene. And you, and then once you understand who he is, you can kind of see that grooming of the victims. And he, he's like a lion stalking his prey. I feel like that works a, a lot more than this, than the later half of the film. And so that's why I just can't get behind it. I just think there's like a 20, because I think the film is, it isn't that long. I think it's only like 90 minutes. I don't, or maybe 110. It's like, just, it's under two hours. I believe I could be dead. It, no, wrong. it is. It is. And the, the director's cut, I want to say is around like 105 minutes. And the, the grindhouse version is like 89 minutes. So, I mean, yeah. cause again, it was designed to be shown as a double feature. So, um, what I recommend, and I'll say this, I don't think any of your criticism, look, we've already said Tarantino's movies are a mess, right? To a certain extent, whether you like his movies or not is entirely dependent on how much you're willing to ignore the mess versus how much the mess bothers you. And for me, Death Proof is one of those movies where I'm willing to ignore the mess because the stuff I like, I like so much. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 is one where I'm less willing to ignore the mess. But I don't, I can't, I can come up with a couple of defenses against some of your criticisms, but for the most part, no. It's a talky movie. It's a self-indulgent movie. Um, You know, I think it's important that we spend a lot of time with the first group of girls so that, like you said, it is such a shock, but did we need to spend more than half the movie with them? Probably not. Um, and could we have used some of that time to flesh out the second group? Probably, you know, but I just think, I think it's one of the movies of his where I thought he actually had a clear statement that he wanted to try and make about, to a certain extent, the kind of people that like Quentin Tarantino movies. And I thought that that was an interesting thing um, because I think it's a little, he's a little more insightful in this one than I think he is in his others. But I'm not going to disagree that the, your criticisms are valid and they're certainly shared by a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people consider Death Proof. Tarantino included consider death proof to be his worst movie. So um, death of the artist, he doesn't get to decide what his worst movie is. We do. Uh, So I disagree with him, but um, I get it. I get it completely. And so, but with that, I think the next film that followed death proof is Inglorious bastards. And and I I think I believe that's right. And this is my favorite Tarantino film. I, love Inglorious Bastards for so for so many different reasons and this was I actually watched this one with my parents and this is I think everything that Tarantino represents he brings to the table and this is it and I was actually reading an article that I mean he always has all these ideas and all these scripts and I think Inglorious Bastards was one he was working on for many many years and then he was writing it then he put it back down I actually I think the original idea had to focus around a group of uh, of African-American soldiers in World War II and and then he kind of put it back and then changed it to uh, Jewish American soldiers. And it was just about the bastards. And he said, well, it doesn't really work that well. Like I want all these other aspects of it. And then he put it down, came back and rewrote it. And, and I, and I, and I, I might be, I might stand corrected on this one, but I remember reading an article that was saying like, this was potentially going to be one of his last films. 
And it was funny because I kind of, that came up because he was thinking about casting himself as Brad Pitt's Aldo Rain's character. And they made the joke that the last frame of the film would be Tarantino looking into the camera saying, this is my masterpiece. And I just think that's funny. And I'm extremely glad that Tarantino was not in that role. But and I was rewatching this after um, uh, just over the weekend. I, I, I got a little buzzed and I was like, you know what? I want to just watch a good movie. And so I put on Inglorious Bastards and I was just glued to the seat. It was like I was... I, I, I forgot how much I love this film. So what are your thoughts on Inglorious Bastards? Oh, I think it's fucking amazing. Um, I mean, it, to me, it's almost it and Pulp Fiction are kind of the two Tarantino movies where I'm sort of like, where he's, he's firing on all cylinders. He's just, everything he's doing comes together. They're not too self-indulgent. They're not too crazy. They're not, they're, they're just, he's at the, at his best in, in both of those movies. I love Inglorious Bastards. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I don't, I literally do not have a criticism of the movie. I, I think it, everything about it, I think the way he uses the chapter format, which as you mentioned, was kind of a Tarantino trope. I'm not sure that the chapter format is ever used to better effect than it is here in Inglorious Bastards. Um, honestly, he could have stopped the movie after the opening chapter with Landa in like if he that alone is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I mean that 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 is so tense. I've never been more terrified that a motherfucker's asking for another glass of milk than I am when Landa asks for another glass of milk in that scene. I mean it's so good. Um and then we get everything else that comes after which is also spectacular. I mean I I'm going to just I could just go on and on but that's kind of boring cuz I could go yeah. on and on for how great this movie is. And I think Subtlety isn't exactly uh, like in Tarantino's language. I mean, it kind of is, but not really. But here, like just talking about that, how awesome that opening scene is. I think the first two chapters are almost flawless. Um, and, and just the, but specifically this opening chapter in that, you know, we go through the whole scene. You're kind of like, okay, what's going on? It's already tense because, because of World War II and, and, and like, you know, he's uh, Hans Landa or Christoph Waltz's character who, if if they did not find Christoph Waltz, this film would not have been made. That Tarantino's and Lawrence Bender have gone on record saying like Tarantino, like right before they were, ca they casted, I think Brad Pitt, they, and they casted, uh, I think some of the bastards and some of the other big leads. And they were saying, oh no, like, did I just write a character that's uncastable? Because if this character doesn't work, the entire film is bust. And then I think Lawrence Bender was laughing that like 12 hours later, Christoph Waltz waltzed into their office and did the line read. And he, and he was so polite. He's like, you know, like, thank you, Mr. Tarantino, Mr. Bender. This was just an honor to just, you know, do this read for you. I, I really appreciate the chance. And then he left and like Lawrence Bender said that they turned to each other and they just high-fived and hugged each other because they found Landa. And so, but what I, and rewatching the scene, especially towards the end of the scene, you realize like just how cold of an evil bastard that this guy is just the subtlety of, you know, drinking the milk, the pulling, letting, uh, the kind of coming off as, as very like friendly, but he's a hawk and like luring, like kind of this false sense of security, but we all know that something's up. Let like, Oh, like Mr. Uh, 
Lapetite, I think is his name. Oh, it's your home. You be comfortable. You smoke your pipe. You're in control of the conversation. And then it just changes automatically with that second glass of milk. He pulls out his own much larger, grandiose pipe and says, you know why I'm so good at my job? I'm called the Jew hunter. And it's because I can think like a Jew. And I don't think that this is this is an insult. This is actually the highest of praises because you like your survivors or like Jews are survivors. And then he just deduces like they're under the floorboards, like show me where the, and he knew going into the house where they are, but he had, but, and he could have just said, all right, men go in, search the house, they're under the floorboards, bring everyone, like we're going to arrest everyone. But he had to be this cat and mouse figure about it. And it's just, sets the tone this is the film also sets up the main uh the main heroine and her plight she it's so subtle masterful filmmaking suddenly just shifting below the floorboards now we see that time bomb it's it's and we know it's there it's oh it's i i could go on and on i could write like a uh like a 50 page thesis about the beginning uh scene of this film well, and what's so amazing about it, you know, you mentioned that Landa's such an evil bastard, and it's like, so Hannah Arendt has a, a very famous saying, the banality of evil, and, and he embodies that, right? Because he's almost like, it would be nice if he was evil, you know, as we get later in the movie, and we meet like Gables and some of the other Nazis, and they're just evil They're but Landa is just, he's almost like a mid-level bureaucrat, he's He's evil simply because, uh, not simply, but he's evil because of his dispassion. This is a job to him. Killing Jewish people is just a job to him, which is why at the end of the movie, it's so easy for him to betray Hitler and betray Germany because he doesn't believe it. He's just literally doing a job. And that's almost more horrifying than somebody who is, you know, a quote unquote true believer when it comes to this kind of stuff, because it's like, wow, you really have no soul. You're, you're, you're a complete sociopath. You have no soul whatsoever, which is what makes, of course, the end of the movie so satisfying. But you're also right. I mean, Melanie Laurent in this movie is, as Shoshana slash Emmanuel, is so fucking fantastic. I mean, she's... The end of this movie, when she projects that image and she says, I am the face of Jewish rage. Oh my God, what a cathartic... Like, it's almost, you can absolutely see what Tarantino was trying to do at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? It's very similar endings. But this one works, I think, so much better. Oh, yeah. Because, and I think, oh, yeah, yeah, you're saying? Oh, well, just because I think he spends the time setting it up better in this one. So it is cathartic. Because we've spent this time with Shoshona. We've spent all this time watching her put this together. We get the great scene to david bowie's cat people where she's putting on the makeup like it's fucking war paint mm -hmm. i mean that's one of my favorite things quentin tarantino's ever shot is that scene where she puts the rouge on but then like runs it across her cheek like it's fucking war paint it's so good and and then you mentioned the end of this film this is i think one of the most memorable endings to a film next to like whiplash because whiplash is one of my favorite films but like I have never been so dumbstruck with what I was seeing and just like 
oh my god, I gotta go see this. Like, I have to watch this again. And and how how much this works? It's kind of like that mini commentary that that Tarantino is having, and it's so smart. So we're watching this like uh, this very nationalistic. I forget what the film is called. Which he actually filmed <laughs> like this uh, this mini film that is that is shown in this film. It's very meta. And it's actually an, uh, a bonus feature on the DVD, and I've seen it. And it's 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 like the Home Alone. They made the gangster movie that like no one knows what it is. It's all fi- fictitious. But we're watching this, and we're watching these Nazis just cheer on as this uh, this soldier massacres all these uh, American soldiers. And we're sit, and the audience is sitting there in disgust that how could you be cheering on this violence? Like fuck these guys. And then suddenly. Tarantino just turns that around when the when the big badass Americans come in and and with the help of of another ally of a French ally come and they just start they blow everyone away literally they they shoot Hitler's face they turn him into Swiss cheese they just start emptying rounds and rounds of bullets and and a hail of fire brimstone as now where is suddenly the audience who was just saying all like like how could like fuck these guys for laughing at this movie now suddenly we're like yeah here we go let's like let's keep it coming and i just think that that is so intelligent and smart and such a very interesting not commentary but just something very unique that tarantino well knew that he was doing yeah absolutely i mean it it was so ballsy to end the movie the way he did you know and i also again just want to call out some other names i mean diane kruger is great but also this is the movie that at least for me put michael fassbender on the map and he's now one of my favorite actors he's an actor that i'll watch in anything but the scene in the bar with all of them is also just this is like i said this and Pulp Fiction are Tarantino on his A-game. Everything is working. All the various, hey, I'm Quentin Tarantino, and I got all these thoughts, and they're all going through my head, and I'm so, uh, Coke's a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> like, these are the two where that all just coalesces into a completely solid, cohesive vision. And... They're just amazing. It's amazing. This movie's fucking incredible. If anybody is listening to this show and hasn't, I can't imagine that there's people that are listening to this show that haven't seen this movie. But if you haven't seen this movie, you need to see this fucking movie. Yeah, it, right away. It is so good. And and so that was like that. So I was, how old was I? I, cause I didn't, so that's like 09, uh, I think it was 09. So I was probably, I was definitely beginning to get into movies. I think my, I think my film collection probably was just about to start. And then this transitions into, uh, I guess we can kind of start wrapping up with the films that were already out with Django and the hateful eight. I think, I think Django is a very competent film. I, I really do. Uh, appreciate the film like I said it has a special place for me because it was my first Tarantino experience in the theater Uh, it was uh, I I can't there's not really much I can like negative I have to say about this film other than it's it's the pacing is a little it's a little long of a film I think some scenes could be tidied up and, and 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 cut from the film altogether but I think it's another excellent film especially following Inglorious Bastards now he's He's changing genres now. He's in that in that fantasy. 
his own Western of the kind of like a slave revolt that only I think Tarantino can tell. And I, and I definitely think, and it's interesting just because of the depiction of slavery. And this wasn't too far off from when uh, 12 Years a Slave was going to come out. And I think that the depictions of slavery, while both are vastly different, in, especially in today's climate, like political climate, American climate, just the, the change of culture, these conversations need to be had. We can't like you can't ignore that, like the systemic racism that is built into our country's just core. And I think having films like this can really not it's not to say that the like Django is going to ignite the like the race relation conversation, but I think it's an ex, it's it's a way to expose people to these ideas and 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 it did definitely get Django definitely did get people talking about especially the use of a particular word and Tarantino's use of it uh, yeah I so I have actually quite a bit to say about Django um and I'm glad you brought up some of it because you're right like first of all one of the things I love about Django I'll talk about the stuff I love first and then the stuff I don't love one of the things I love about it is it's basically Tarantino's superhero movie, right? This is a superhero origin story uh, about, and, and he is giving people a black hero in the, you know, 1800s, mid 1800s America. Uh, and, and he came out afterwards and said, you know, he envisioned Django as an ancestor of John Shaft because it's, hmm. you know, Brunhilde von Schaft and, and and I love that because he really is and especially the way Jamie Foxx plays him Jamie Foxx plays him as Old West Shaft and and Jamie Foxx is so fucking good in this movie yeah that's such a heroic presence um the the stuff that I love in this movie I love the stuff that I don't love is you're right it's again this is very indulgent. I mean, my God, that scene with Tarantino and the other Australian slavers just grinds when the movie should be building up to its climax and Django's revenge. It just grinds it to a halt. This thing needed to be cut by easily a half an hour. And if you cut it by half an hour, I think you got a damn good 70s style black exploitation western which I, is what he was trying to achieve and yeah you mentioned the men you know the word a certain word that tarantino loves to use i know spike lee has called him out for that and there's definitely something to be said for that i being a very 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 white dude if i was <laughs> any whiter i would be transparent <laughs> i'm not going to wade into that other than to say I deferred to people of color when they said they would like Tarantino to stop using that word so much. And I think they, that's probably an okay thing. And you will notice to a certain extent in um, once upon a time in Hollywood, he manages to avoid all of that. Of course, we'll talk more about the fact that he manages to avoid all of that by having any people of not having any people of color in the movie, but that's for later in our discussion. But I like Django. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it needs to be cut. I think it's both the best and worst of Tarantino on display. Yeah. And, 
And so I guess this can transition into the final film before we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that is The Hateful Eight. So I think this is a special film, especially because of The Roadshow. This, I think, is what comes out with Tarantino, like really trying to preserve the film, like the actual physical film, because I think he's one of the few directors that still shoots on film. And outside of, I think, Chris Nolan still does it. uh, I think Paul Thomas Anderson still does as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I wouldn't be surprised if Scorsese did as well, but I think his films are also now switching into digital. But the roadshow was such an event. I I saw it on the roadshow. Brian and I, we were still living in Maryland at the time. And we definitely looked, I still actually have my like brochure packet that I had when we got there. We, we went to the Silver Springs, Maryland, uh, AFI uh, theater. And this is where we also saw, it sucks because I moved away and then this was only like an hour and a half, two hours from my house. And, and that's where we, and they would have all these original screenings. That's where I saw Seven Samurai on an original print in this theater, it, it like restored oh, film. lucky bastard. It was one of, on a side tangent, that was one of the best movie theater experiences I've ever had. That was one of the fastest four hours I've ever experienced in my life. Like I just never wanted the film to end. Oh and, no, I, I mean, I love that movie so much. I can't even describe it. And that you got to see it in the theater. This is one of the things that sucks about living in Utah <laughs> is I don't, I don't get this shit. Like I never got the road show. I damn sure don't get to see seven samurai on like a restored print. Like, Oh, you lucky son of a bitch. And the road show was fun. It was definitely cause we were so, cause this was, this was now our second uh, Tarantino film. I think I was 19, 20. I was, I was one of the, I think I just turned 20. And I was like, all right, here we go. Like Brian and I got there super early. We, 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 since we had seen seven samurai, we like knew where to park. There was a, there's like a really nice pizza place, like, like nice pizza, like right next to the parking lot. We're like, all right, we'll go see this movie. We'll walk. It was like in walking distance. It's like a nice downtown area. Like, well, it'll be, it's it's just going to make a night of it. And this was also right before I had to go back for, uh, uh, (laughs) for hell, I guess week, but for, for swimming. So I'm like, I'm really just going to enjoy this like last week off and like not think about that. Like, I'm just going to turn my brain off and just watch a Tarantino film. And I remember it was really crowded and, and I guess this can be like a kind of a, like a pseudo like movie going experience. And I remember I was annoyed because people were coming in late, which was annoying. And then like, and there wasn't assigned seating. So they were like, flashlights out trying to look for like seats in like the middle and they were just being really obnoxious and the and they had an overture of the film which it started with just a a dark theater except for one spotlight which was shining directly into my eyes (laughs) so that kind of took me out of the moment for a moment for a second but then you know at and the um a neo marconi score oh my god i have the hateful eight on vinyl i'm looking at the like I have my record collection right in front of me and I see it right now. I absolutely love listening to this score. So that was awesome. Then the, then the screen, the, the curtains open and the screen comes on filmed in seven, 70 millimeter, like the HD of film spectacular. Like the film looked great, but then the movie starts and I definitely have some issues with the film especially in regards to like the pacing and I think like you said earlier this is definitely Tarantino is doing something different and I recognize that right from the beginning but I didn't 
necessarily enjoy it a whole well, no that's not true i enjoyed it but i didn't know how to process it when i was seeing it because it felt like a play which it was written to be a play and i remember the the whole the whole controversy that the script was leaked and that they had like a table reading and then someone leaked it from there um they had like a table reading of a script of like a scene and i remember watching it like this is like a play but it's boring Damn, I, I'm like at a, lot, a loss of words of how to describe it because I wasn't bored, but it just wasn't what I was expecting, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I wasn't necessarily bored through the film. I just didn't know where, what he was doing, what he was going. I was catching the homages, especially to, you know, like Carpenter's The Thing and, and all these isolation things that he was going for, but I just didn't know how to process it at the time. Yeah, I mean, Hateful Eight's interesting uh, because I love it. It's actually one of my very favorite Tarantino movies, but it, it to me is kind of like Jackie Brown. It's a movie where he's trying to do something different. I mean, we've got a damn near three-hour movie that takes place almost entirely in one location. That's a bold move, right? That's a, that's a bold flex from a director. And it's essentially his Agatha Christie movie now i will admit probably shouldn't admit but i will admit (laughs) when the script leaked i read the script so when i saw the movie i was kind of more prepared for where it was going and what it was doing because when i read the script i loved it i thought it was fantastic and when i found out they had cast walton goggins as chris mannix because literally he was who i pictured as Mm -hmm. i was reading the script um, but the other thing I liked about it is, again, not to get too political here, but, you know, when this movie came out and when they were filming it, it was during the rise of Black Lives Matter, the Ferguson riots were going on. And what I love about this movie is you can just feel Tarantino's anger. Um, you know, he's pissed that a hundred years later, a black man still has to have a forged letter from Abraham Lincoln to not get shot. Basically. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and so that really resonated with me in the movie. Um, and, and the acting is so good. This is one of those, I actually thought this for as long as it was, it moved really fast because again, uh, much like Inglorious Bastards, I thought his use of chapters in this was perfect. The way he does the chapter breaks, it's just as you're starting to feel a segment is going on too long. Boom, chapter break. Um, and it kind of gives you a chance to mentally reset. So I I love Hateful Eight. I, I think it's, it, it's, but it's the Tarantino movie that I don't recommend. It's the Tarantino movie that I love, but I don't recommend it to anybody because I think it, it it's, it's a commitment to watch it. Uh, and if you're not vibing on it, it's a miserable three hours. Um, so it's definitely not, you know, if somebody came up to me and was like, Hey, I've heard of, like, I don't know, whatever. Some dude living in a cave for the last 20 years comes up to me and he's like, I just came out of a cave and I want to know about Quentin Tarantino. I sure as fuck am not starting them off with the hateful eight. Like that would be a disaster. You, this is the movie you watch last after you've absorbed every other Tarantino movie. 
Yeah, and I think now I was listening to you talk and I was trying to reframe or rephrase what I was trying to say earlier. I think my two biggest gripes with the movie is that it's not that I think it's boring. I was just wait. I just thought there was too much of of uh, of telling and not showing. Like the sequence when everyone is finally in this carriage heading to um, the haberdashery, there was a lot of, do you know who this is? Well, he's this character. I know who you are. You're this character. She's this character. I'm this character. And I was like, there's, I just feel like there's so much, there's, there's a lot more interesting ways to tell this other than just a shot, shot, reverse shot of just two people telling me who these people are. Tell me through, and I don't even mean like go into, uh, I may have said this, I, Brian and I did like an initial impression like way, way back. And I think I may have said something like, oh, I want to see the flashbacks of these scenes. And now that I reflect on that, that's not necessarily what I want, but I just thought there was a lot, an awful lot of telling instead of, you know, subtlety in, in, in showing the subtlety. Although there was subtlety in the film, I just thought there's a lot of, of, uh, of exposition. And the other thing that would really intrigued me about the film was it's, it's a whodunit. And that was really, I was like, okay, well, who's doing this? Like, I'm looking at all these characters. Who's, who's the red herring? Who's the misdirect? Like, who, who's, who's like the bad guy here? And I was so invested until the actual twist of it's everybody. I think that is, it's not lazy, but because then we get the setup to the scene, but I just don't think that's very satisfying when it's just like, oh, it's everyone, everyone's in on it. Because then it's like, it just kind of makes me feel like I'm picking up, I'm trying to pick up on the cues of who everyone is and it's everyone. And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like you didn't need to be like, I thought it was going to be like Clue or something. Like, oh, this is interesting. And it kind of is like, it's, it's something that I necessarily wasn't, found satisfying for those reasons well and that's totally fair but the thing is is i don't know you know this is not an insult mike but you're a youngin yeah, that's <laughs> hey calls it as he sees it <laughs> um i don't know how familiar you are with agatha christie but both of those things tie together when you were saying that like it's a lot of exposition and a lot of tell don't show that's how Agatha Christie's stories work. This is Tarantino's Murder on the Orient Express. And I'm going to spoil the shit out of Murder on the <laughs> Orient Express for people. But guess what? At the end of Murder on the Orient Express, they all did it. Like, this is his homage to Agatha Christie. And, and I don't even know. You know, it's funny. For all the things that people talked about with April 8th, I didn't see a ton. I'm sure there are people that caught that, but that was the first thing I caught. And, and Agatha Christie is a very formulaic writer. Uh, and, and she was very much a lot of tell don't show a lot of over explanation. And, and so again, it's one of those things where if you're not like your complaints are not invalid, they're 100% valid. I immediately picked up on what the movie was going to be. And part of that, I think, is probably because I read the script first. And I was like, oh, I get it. And there are some changes. The script that leaked is not the same one that they shot. Of course. But it's 90% the same. Um, but I loved the Agatha Christie nature of it. But that is a unique vibe. It's a unique thing. And, and so... 
if you're not noticing it or enjoying it for that, I can see that. That's a legitimate complaint about the movie. Um, one of the things I will always say about all of Tarantino's movies, and this is going to be true for even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is damn it, the dude knows how to cast good actors. Oh, yeah. And so even his worst movies or even his movies you're not enjoying as much, you can just sit back and bask in the joy of watching really good actors. And Hateful Eight, for nothing else, as an actor's showcase is worth seeing because there are some really good fucking actors in that movie. Oh yeah. And I guess Tarantino, and this is going to come, especially I'll reiterate this in uh in once upon a time in Hollywood in a few minutes, he is an actor's director and you, and you listen to all those interviews. Like my favorite one is with Jamie Foxx and Howard Stern talking about the type of directing style that Tarantino is. And it's funny because Jamie Foxx is like, Oh, like I came in and I was reading it like, like cool and suave. And then he's like, hey, Quentin just pulled me off to the side. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, you're not cool yet. He's like, you're, you're a slave. You're an illiterate black slave. He's like, you're not cool yet. You get to be the hero in the end, but right now you're not cool. So cut the shit and get it together. And Jamie Foxx was like, that's exactly what I needed. And then, and we right. got one hell of a performance. And that's like you said, every Tarantino film, I am enraptured by the performance that he's able to get by his cast. And especially like someone that we didn't mention yet and who we will in the next one is Leo DiCaprio. One of the, like, I think he's a phenomenal actor, but one of the things with him is I have such trouble disassociating his personality from most of his roles. There's, there's a few exceptions. I think the, my personal opinion, I think catch me if you can Django, um, uh, Blood Diamond, The Departed. I think these films, I don't see Leo. And one, and I'll tip my hand a little bit. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't see Leo. And and I think that's like the beauty that Tarantino can get from his actors. I don't see the actor. I see the character that he's written. Especially it, Samuel L. Jackson. He is a character caricature of himself now. Of Or, or like he kind of plays a lot of the same characters in a lot of his films, but in every Tarantino film, I don't see jewels. I, I see, I, I see whoever Tarantino wrote for him. I, I see, uh, Oh, what is the, uh, what, what is his name in, uh, in, uh, in Django? I forget, I forget his name. Steven. Steven. That's it. I was about to say like Jeffrey or something. No. Yeah. yeah. I see, I see Steven. I see jewels. I, I yeah. see this Colonel. Like I see all of these characters, which is, Saying that for Samuel L. Jackson is a, a huge compliment, but that's all of his actors. So I definitely, and I definitely have appreciated the hateful eight as time has gone on. But you're right; it's the film that you should, if if you're introducing someone to Tarantino, it's the one you should watch last. Although it it, it is one of his more, it's one of the more different ones. But I and I and I think that's for the for the better. Yeah, it, it's definitely not. You don't want to introduce somebody to Tarantino with a hateful eight. It's not. I love it, but it's a movie that requires a, an understanding of who Tarantino is and of what he's trying to accomplish. I think. And one more thing that I want to say before we get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's use of humor in his films, like there's always been some, you know, scattered throughout. But I think it became more overt, starting with Django. Maybe a little bit in um, in Inglorious Bastards with Brad Pitt's 
a caricature of Aldo Rain, which I still quote the lines when they're like they're at when they blow their cover by just they don't speak Italian, the Bongiorno, Gorlami, um, Margareti. Like these lines, like I think are funny, but that's like at the end of this like very serious film. I think Django, it starts to become a, they start to infuse more comedy, you know, with the, with the clan, with the talk about slavery, with, with all of, um, with Django and Schultz's character with the first bounty. Like there's a lot more humor infused into the film. Uh, There's a lots of very serious scenes. Um, I think there's also definitely more, I don't want to say slapstick, but physical comedy in the hateful eight with Kurt Russell and, 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 um, and uh, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character and, and Samuel L. Jackson, you know, just reveling in like killing all these and like killing all these people. Like when he blows Bob's head off right. and he's just laughing or like that, like was just funny and just how black, like just how direct it was. But I think the humor now is, it comes, it's starting to get even more overt with once upon a time in Hollywood. So if you have any more closing thoughts uh, about the canon of Tarantino before we get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because we're we're right about there, an hour and twenty into this conversation, we're about to talk about the main the main piece of of tonight. No, let's do it. Let's move on to to Hollywood. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, let me ask you, Mike, were you excited for this film? Because going into this, I I don't want to say I wasn't excited. I think it's just what's going on in my life right now. You know, the the year accelerated nursing program. Uh, you know. It's a lot of like adjusting to an adulthood. I'm not a kid anymore. I mean, I could have told you that a few years ago, but it's now adult life is now finally like <laughs> presenting itself to me. And that's like, everyone has to come to terms with that in their own way. So I think with just a lot going on, I wasn't necessarily excited for the film, but I still saw it opening weekend. But what were your thoughts going into the film? Were you excited when you first heard this and, and then transition into what were your thoughts after you saw the film? So I actually wasn't that excited um, because of Django, because of Hateful Eight. And, and to a certain extent, a lot of Tarantino movies, I know it takes me a little while to come around to them. Um, and so I don't actually get that excited when I hear he's got a new movie coming out because I know it's going to be a movie that I'm going to have to wrestle with. Right, as opposed to, say, take, for instance, a Marvel movie where I know what I'm getting and, and stuff like that. Um, so I wasn't that excited to see it, uh, not because I didn't want to see it, but then I was also a little concerned about the whole Manson thing. And I should have known that he wasn't going to do what we were worried about. Um, and, and so that was fine. Once that kind of came out that I didn't need to worry about it, I went and, you know, saw it. Once I got done seeing it, you know, I texted you and it was like, man, I don't know. I don't know about this movie. Um, I like a lot of it. I think a lot of it is great. I think the stuff that I don't like, I don't like more than anything in any other Tarantino movie. And, you know, going back to me talking about Death Proof and, and us kind of disagreeing on that, but I said, you know, I think it's one of the clearest sort of theses of Tarantino's career. This is the exact opposite of that Ex for me. Yes, exactly. This so is the first Tarantino movie where 
other than a, a platitude of, oh, it's the changing of an era, I don't know what he's trying to say here. Um, I left the movie and I was like, I don't know. You know, Hateful Eight was, he was so mad about racism and where we are today. And Django was about the creation of an iconic hero. This one, I'm like, I don't, other than the fact that he very clearly loves Sharon Tate, which is fine. Uh, I get that. And he wanted to write that wrong. I get that. But other than that, I don't get what he's trying to say in this movie. And that's, that, that's what I was going to get at. I was going to ask, what is the point of this film? And my one-line review that I've been telling people is, I feel like that this film is wasted potential. And like, like, I, like going back to the point of the film, I would argue that each Tarantino film has an object to each of the films. Like we, we've been talking about, whether it's war films, heist films without the heist, redemption or spiritual stories like we see in Pulp Fiction, revenge films, these, these ultimate fantasies, commenta- uh, um, these commentaries on uh, masculinity or you know, the, the racial conflicts in the United States at the time. Uh, what is this film? And, and my, my thoughts is kind of what you were saying with this end of an era in that Tarantino, I, well, I was hoping that this was going to be like, especially like towards the end of the film, I was thinking that this is Tarantino's form of coming to terms with an era of filmmaking that was he, that he was a part of his ending. We are now entering an age of CGI digital filmmaking. Tarantino, he's not being left in the wind, but it's this, it's this end of an era of, I think, big A-list movie stars that you will go see the film because Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Quentin Tarantino, their names are on the film, and you will go see it regardless of what it's about. I think that era is ending. Film is kind of coming to an end uh, now that we're moving into more digital age. But it's kind of about that, but not really, because Tarantino decides the end of film with Rick Dalton just kind of not really learning. Like, no one really learns a lesson in the film. I, I, I don't know if the movie's about the dynamic between Rick and, and, um, and Cliff. I, don't, I really don't know. Is it like the superficial nature of Hollywood? And if I thought that Kill Bill was Tarantino masturbating on the screen, this film is like bukkake like he just it's just it's just so much shit all over the screen and you're like oh my god i get it like you're a you're i get it you're a movie buff you love films i'm with you i want to like this film i really want to like this film but like it's like dude you gotta tone it down a little bit like i get it you're a nerd but i don't know i just thought this movie was just such a like a, a just wasted potential and it was just overly long I thought that there was at least an hour segment that could have been stricken from the film and it made no impact whatsoever where I thought that the, that the film was going, it didn't like, I thought there was going to be more like, again, I was also concerned about the Manson uh, aspect of the film and that's not really a factor at all, which was weird. Like characters were coming in and dropping out where I thought there was going to be set up and payoff. There were none. And I read some reviews about people saying subverting expectations and I absolutely hate that term in defense of films because to me sub- subversion of expectations 
is a way to defend lazy writing and 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 there are because there are films that actually subvert expectations i mean take hereditary for for instance i won't get into the spoilers of that film but all i say all i'll say is that the trailer of that film that's not the movie is not at all what you think if you just see the trailer and go into the film but you don't see people going out saying oh it's a subversion of expectations like they might bring that up but it's not in defense of the movie it's just it's just a comment of the movie but then you get people like ryan johnson who oh it's subverting expectations and and i have lots of issues with the last jedi and i think it's because not necessarily lazy writing it just doesn't make sense and i think that's kind of the issue that i have with once upon a time in hollywood it's subverting expectations due to lazy writing and unfocused thoughts so uh i'm going to ignore the shot at the last jedi and just <laughs> and maybe we'll need to do a podcast down the road about that yeah hey but, I'll, I'll return to the last jedi but i, but I do have some I, problems but yeah back but to this. i i don't disagree with you the, the biggest thing i can say about this movie is i think the whole is far inferior to the sum of its parts I think there are parts in this movie that work incredibly. You know, Brad Pitt at the Spawn Ranch, Cliff at the Spawn Ranch is unbelievable. It's so good. It makes me want Tarantino to make a horror movie. Uh, Leo doing the, like, getting his mojo back and doing that kick-ass scene with Luke Perry and the little girl where, you know, and, like, that's great. And, And Margot Robbie watching her own movie and giggling at, you know, the audience laughing at her is great. All of these things are great, but they don't come together. You know, Inglorious Bastards is a very disjointed movie. But at the end of the movie, everything comes together in a cohesive whole with a cohesive point. Nothing in this movie pulls together um, in a way that I think says anything of value. Um, I can't say I hated the movie as I was watching it because again, like we mentioned, Tarantino's actors, like, look, I can watch fucking Brad Pitt and Mario Robbie and Leonardo DiCaprio read cereal boxes. <laughs> I mean, I, like, these are charismatic, three of the most charismatic actors we have working. And so I didn't, I wasn't upset watching the movie. I've certainly seen worse movies, but I just didn't feel like all these disparate parts came together in anything that meant anything other than he wanted to take the piss out of the Manson family, which is fine. They are people that need the piss taken out of them. But did we need two hours and 45 minutes for him to take the piss out of the Manson family at the very end of the movie? Um, you know, if you want to take the piss out of the Manson family, do it throughout the whole movie. Don't just wait until the very end for, you know, Brad Pitt's dog to kill them all. Uh, yeah, it, it, it just doesn't come together. It's the first movie of his that I can look and say, yeah, that just doesn't come together. Cause I would have said that about Kill Bill, Kill Bill volume one that it doesn't come together, but volume two pulls it all together. So this is really the one that I'm like, yeah, this just doesn't come together for me. Uh, It's a bunch of pieces that are all enjoyable, but I don't get what I'm supposed to take away from it. 
Yeah, and that's what you were saying, especially with like the Manson family. Like, I, it's just one of those things. Like, there's like why. And Brian and I were talking about this in in our review. At least in those films, the, the these people that ultimately get their comeuppance, they deserve it. They are bad people in Tarantino's universe. Like, we're watching them kill Nazis. We're watching them kill slavers. We're watching them kill racists. We're watching them kill just awful uh, like assassins who have who've killed many people. It's it's this cathartic release. But here in Tarantino's universe, they haven't done anything. And that's what I was waiting for. Just waiting for some tension to build. Maybe like I knew I knew going to this film that Sharon Tate was not going to be killed in the end. What I thought, this is my my ending of the film was that because I knew Bruce Lee was going to be in the film and I knew that Rick Dalton and, and Brad Pitt were going to be these action, this action sidekick duo type characters. What I thought was going to happen was that uh, Charlie Manson was actually going to be there and, and Tarantino, and he was going to just lead, you know, whoever there. And we were going to get an Inglorious. Well, we kind of we did get an Inglorious Bastards, but I thought it was going to be more akin to Inglorious Bastards, not that he rewrote history. So I thought that Charlie Manson was going to go in and just start like you know fucking people up, you know, being a psychotic evil bastard, and and then Rick Dalton, Cliff, and Bruce Lee were going to come in and kill everyone and just and just fuck him up. That's what I thought was going to happen. Nope, <laughs> that is not at all what happened. So. Because I'm like, why do we have Bruce Lee in this movie for this five-minute one-off joke? Which, albeit, I thought was a great scene, and I thought it was a funny, like, one-off joke. But then he never comes back in the movie except for one insert shot. And then the end of the film – oh, yep, yep. No, I was just going to say – I have very different views on the Bruce Lee scene, but that's neither, that's not related to what you're talking about. I'm sure I will go on about it in a minute, though, but continue. Okay. But so, but I was saying, like, there's no – like in this in this Tarantino universe, they haven't done anything. They're not killing people. Like the whole scene when we go to Spawn Ranch, that's like 25, 30 minutes long. The first burst of tension in the film, and we're like an hour and a half in at this point, and there's no tension. And I'm like, oh, here we go. We're finally getting attention. I remember I, I was seeing with my buddies on the opening weekend, and he's like, oh, does George Spawn live up there? And then everyone like gets really tense and abrasive. I'm like, fucking finally, something's going to happen. And then, and it's, and it's expertly, like, well-paced and, de- and like, developed. You're like, oh, my God, like, what's going to happen? I was thinking that they killed George. Like, uh, we're going to have a psycho moment. And then he sits back down, and it's fine. Which And, like, that's not even the issue that I have. Because I think that's a really interesting, mis- like, misdirect and just reversal. But that whole scene from Spawn Ranch goes nowhere because that, that that hippie character who is like flirting with Brad Pitt who who's been introduced at least four times in the film drops out of the film none of the characters remember Brad Pitt's character when they finally go to Rick Dalton's house there's just like I thought they were going to set up with these tourists that they were like leading them like kill them that we were okay at least these are bad people Nope. And then we get to the final scene where we get this really weird segment of, oh, we should kill our, we should kill the people that, that taught us how to kill like man. And, and then Uma Thurman's daughter runs away. And then we get into Rick Dalton's house and this really weird mixture of violence just didn't work for me in that it it's, it's going super realistic and brutal with no stylized violence to it. It's just 
Brad Pitt is curb stomping people. A dog is literally ripping people apart. Brad Pitt is bashing people's faces into walls and that, and then he gets stabbed and he's just out cold. And then that's like super real, like realistic and gritty. And then we get Leo's character who just pulls out the, the, um, the flamethrower and just torches someone that worked a little bit more for that for me, but it was just this weird, I almost want to say juxtaposition of these types of violence. I didn't think he could do both. He had to pick one, do one, but not, not the other, or you can't do both. So I don't know. That was kind of my interpretation of the ending is that I didn't really like it. And it was super jarring and, and everyone around me was laughing and I was like, am I missing something? Because I'm not, I'm not with this at all. Well, so for me, on a primal level, I thought the ending worked like gangbusters. Because again, I'm very familiar with the Manson family. I've read several books on them. So I didn't need a lot of backstory on them to just enjoy watching Brad Pitt curb stomp them. That being said, taking, again, that is a part that I enjoyed. But taking it as part of a whole and a, a narrative arc you know we mentioned when we talked about inglorious bastards how masterfully tarantino sets up shoshana's story at the start of that movie so that then when we see i am the face of jewish rage uh it's so cathartic and such a release if this movie is such a love letter to sharon tate why does sharon tate not get the same cathartic release that Shoshona does? Mm -hmm. Why does she not get to be the one who stops the Manson family? You know, because this movie is a love letter to her. I mean, if you look at the way Tarantino shoots Margot Robbie, it's all soft focus with soft lighting. The rest of the movie's all fairly harsh lighting and, and sharp focus. Like he's clearly trying to make her an, angel essentially yeah, it literally and, took the words out of my mouth and, and it look man margot robbie is an angel amongst mere mortals i got no <laughs> problem with that but from a narrative standpoint then she's actually deprived like she gets to live and i get that but she is deprived of writing the wrong you know so much of tarantino's last few movies have been about writing historical wrongs and glorious bastards they're killing nazis Django fucks up a bunch of slave owners. Uh, you know, Hateful Eight, Samuel L. Jackson gets to, to, to rail against, uh, a, a, you know, racists and tell that story to Bruce Dern about what he did to his son. Like, so many of these movies about, are about cathartic releases of historical wrongs. And this one, yeah, to a certain extent we get that because the Manson family gets fucked up but it's two fictional white guys doing it as opposed to the actual victim of the Manson family getting to do it. And mm -hmm. so while I enjoyed that ending from a primal, just I like watching people get fucked up in movies <laughs> standpoint taken on the whole, I think it's a miss, man. I think it, I think it doesn't work for what, and that is above and beyond anything else. That is where I don't get what he's trying to say, because if Sharon Tate, even if let's say for an instance, 
they have the meeting earlier where JC brings like, Hey, you're Rick Dalton. Why do you want to come up to the house? And not that I'm rewriting the movie, but you know, and he's like, well, can I bring my buddy Cliff? And they go up to the house and then the Manson family comes to the house and Rick and Cliff still do most of the fucking up to have Sharon there, I think would have given us a cathartic release that the movie denies us. And, and that's, again, that's where I, I don't know what he was trying to say here. I yeah, really and even don't. and even then, like that ending, like that last third was all narration by Kurt Russell. So, which was just and, and like I mean, the only narration before that point was when in the very beginning of the movie when Leo says, "Oh, like my car's in the shop." He's like, "Well, that's a big fucking lie." Yeah, and and then at the end, but then and I said this earlier with Brian, I was like, "This what's really weird? Like, why wasn't?" Tarantino the narrator why was it like Samuel L. Jackson the narrator because Kurt Russell is in the film so I've seen him I know his voice so why is he the narrator as well like that's like a weird nitpick but it takes me out of it but then like the last like okay we're rewriting the history of Sharon Tate it's all done like the setup is all done through like voiceover narration and it's like all right oh shit we're we're running on like the like we're almost coming up on three hours we got to get this movie done let's hit the fast forward button real quick which is just like i thought this is what we're building up to and now we're just gonna have all of this set up with voiceover narration so i don't know i just feel like this movie is extremely disjointed and wasted potential but i want to i want to ask you you mentioned about the Bruce Lee earlier. I'm just very curious about what you had out, like your thoughts on that film because, or that scene, because it kind of paints Bruce Lee like a chump. (laughs) Well, and so this is obviously, you know, if anybody's been on social media, this is one of the most controversial aspects of the movie. Right. And as I said earlier, I am a very, very white guy. Here's what I know. A lot of white people don't seem to be bothered by this scene a lot of Asian Americans seem to be really fucking bothered by this scene. So I'm gingerly wading into this because I'm not Asian American. What I can say is that as a Bruce Lee fan and a fan of martial arts and Asian stars and Asian actors, I really fucking hated everything about this scene. And I'm not one of those people. I don't think Bruce Lee's some sacred cow that can't be. I, I, there's so, this is a deep cut, but there is a, a Hong Kong movie called High Risk starring Jet Li and Jackie Chung, uh, where Jackie Chung basically plays a Bruce Lee type character. And he is a pompous windbag who the entire, his entire story arc is he's become this famous actor and has lost touch with his martial arts. And it's brilliant. It's hilarious. It's a great, like, Bruce Lee was a character. He was arrogant. He was angry. He was a lot of things. And so you can poke fun at that. I don't have a problem with them poking fun at Bruce Lee. What I have a problem with is there's nothing else to this. There's no reason for that scene to exist other than to to punch Bruce Lee in the nuts, right? Like, Tarantino's claimed to be a big Bruce Lee fan. And I'm sitting here going, well... But how? Yeah. Because, like, okay, you know, I know on one hand I get the idea, well, you got to set it up to show how tough Cliff is. You got Steve fucking McQueen in your movie. Have him beat up Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen trained with Bruce Lee. Like, you could have him beat up Steve McQueen and accomplish, and it would almost make more sense because McQueen had 
Bruce Lee on the Green Hornet had no fucking power. That's why he had to go to Hong Kong to make movies. So the idea that him getting in this fight with Bruce Lee is the end of his career, that makes more sense if he does it to Steve McQueen because McQueen had power. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike Moe was great, but, you know, I saw Walter Chaw, who is a great writer. I follow him on Twitter. He wrote, and he's an Asian American. He wrote a, a great article on Vox where he was talking about the biggest problem with the Bruce Lee scene isn't so much the movie itself, but the way audiences react to it by laughing at Bruce Lee. And I kind of get that. And I kind of agree with it. And he says, you know, what Tarantino is trying to do is humanize Bruce Lee. That's where I don't agree with him because if he was trying to humanize Bruce Lee, we would have had Bruce Lee in more of the movie. Bruce Lee was a fascinatingly complex man who had a lot of demons and a lot of problems. We don't get that. We get an arrogant blowhard who gets thrown into a car by Brad Pitt. And on top of that, he's literally the only person of color in the entire fucking movie. Like it's, it's a bad look. I think it's a, it's a misfire on Tarantino's part. I don't think it was malicious. I think it was tone deaf and, uh, in, I, 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 it took me out of the movie. It, it took a lot for the movie to get me back after that. Yeah. And I think it goes into more it's, yeah, it's not malicious. It's Tarantino being caught up in what he's doing in his love letter to cinema or into, into the, the sixties era and of, uh, of Sharon Tate in this, like this end of an era. And it, but yeah, I don't know. This just, this film, it just left a bad taste in my mouth. And, I and it make and I'm like okay so Tarantino only has a few one, supposedly only one more film left and the big gossip right now is that he's pushing for the Star Trek movie and the only thing that I've been seeing about it is um is what he's been going back and forth with uh with with like Star Trek people <laughs> fighting about it cuz they're like back off and he's like no fuck you I'm going to make a Tarantino I'm going to make a Tarantino Star Trek movie I hope he doesn't I I, I hope he returns to his roots, does something, not something in the, in the, in the vein of Kill Bill, where he's like, oh God, I got to get like, ev- well, everyone loves this movie. So I don't think that's happening, which is right. weird because I, I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah. You feel kind of crazy, right? Yeah, like, I'm, like, I, I'm the same way. Like, I'm kind of like, am I, am I crazy? Uh, am I, did I see, did I walk into the wrong theater and see a different movie than what everybody else saw? Because everybody else, you and I and Brian seem to be kind of the only people I know that didn't just love this movie. And it's, and, that, and like I said, like, that's fine if people love this movie. Like, it's, I'm not, like, I honestly, I am envious of you because I feel like I'm missing something. And right. I feel, like, stupid for that. But, and, and that's not to say there's not any good to it. Like, not at all. But I just feel like a lot of the things I'm hearing is that, Leo and Brad Pitt are amazing. Yes. Share like um, Margot Robbie looks the part. Uh, the, the, just the, like I said earlier, like way in the beginning of this conversation, the passion that Tarantino is bringing is ever present. And you can feel like it's, it's like you're transported to an era that I've, I've never experienced outside of film. And like, that's all good and well, but then when you really dive into it, it's like, it's just, there's not a lot there other than just two and a, like two hours and 45 minutes of time. 
And it's, it's funny. I, after this film, I just felt so defeated because I just felt so disappointed that I didn't like this. And I, I took out my Snapchat and, and I, and I was sitting in my car and I just started blaring, um, Mr. Blue Sky. And I'm like, and I, and this was my review, my initial review of the film. I was like, I sent it to my, a few friends and I just said, you know, I have to listen to upbeat music right now because I was so disappointed and I just feel like I wasted three hours of my time. And I, and I feel all for awful for saying that. And then like, that was the video and maybe I, I'll try and find it. And maybe I'll like put that like at the, like the, after the, the end credits song plays. And if anyone wants that uh, little end credit scene, if you will, but yeah, I don't know. I just really didn't like this movie and I just feel so bad for saying that because I've been, I've been reading the articles. I've been listening to the podcast. I've been re- watching the YouTube videos and I'm just like, I just don't see it. And I feel bad, I feel bad. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I listened to, as soon as I got done seeing it, the first thing I listened to was Dana and Kristen's episode and then yours and Brian's. And I've listened to a bunch of others and uh, I just, I don't know, man. You know, and I feel like I'm not, like, like I said earlier, I grew up with Tarantino. I'm not some neophyte that doesn't, like, I fucking know Tarantino like the back of my hand, man. And I just feel like this is a movie I feel like is getting graded on a curve by a lot of people. And that if it wasn't Tarantino making it, if it was some other director, I just don't know that it would get the pass. I I feel like it's getting a pass. Um, and I don't really know why. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I think the parts are really good. I just think the whole, and I wonder if maybe that's it. People are getting swept up in the parts. You know, when I hear people talking about the movie, they're talking about these high points of the movie, but they're still, not necessarily talking about it on a whole, you know, I, I can, and I, I, I don't know. I'll be interested to see in five years what people think of this one. Yeah, exactly. And Brian was also hinting at that as well. Like he's giving it the benefit of the doubt right now. And hopefully with time and, and, uh, in reflection that we can change our minds, but without just repeating what we're just saying the same thing over and over again, since this is the film that kind of, sparked this episode i'll ask you uh two questions what would you rate this film out of out of 10 i think i gave this initially a five out of 10 stars and i'm still going to keep it at that uh it's not my least favorite tarantino film but it's number eight for me i think death proof is number nine and this is number eight for me and so what would you rate this out of 10 and would you recommend this? Like if you were to recommend this, who would you recommend it to? Or would you just wait, just say, wait till it's on VOD? Because that's what I've been saying to almost everyone that asked me how the film is. Just wait until it's on HBO or something. Cause I don't, I just can't justify to someone spending however much money on a movie ticket concessions, possibly having uh, contributing to like a movie, like a shitty movie going experience for this film. I, I just don't think it's worth that. So I've been saying just wait till it's on VOD and you can watch it in the comfort of your own home. So that's kind of where I'm at on once upon a time in Hollywood. So out of 10, I would, it's hard to say because if I'm being objective, 
and trying to put on film critic hat, <laughs> I would probably rate it seven out of 10 just because the talent on the screen, the way the acting, first of all, the scenes that work and the way Tarantino shoots the movie, you know, the way he's recreated this 1969 Hollywood is so impressive that I would probably rate it a seven. Um, but it's a disappointing seven, right? It's a very, very, like, it's a seven, but I don't love rating it that. Yeah. As far as what I would recommend it, who would I recommend it to? If you're a Tarantino fan, I would still recommend it. If you're not a Tarantino fan, this is not where I would start. Um, <laughs> I would probably start with this before Hateful Eight, but this mm. is not where I would start. Um I think if you have AMC A-List or another one of those passes, you should probably go see it in the theater again just because of the scope and the visuals. Seeing it on the big screen is nice. From a story standpoint, no, you ain't losing anything if you wait until it's on Blu-ray or VOD, uh, especially if you have a decent-sized TV at home. Um, honestly, I think it might actually play better at home. Um because it is a very deliberately paced movie. Uh, it is by far and away my least favorite Tarantino movie. It is at the bottom of the list without question. Um, and I don't, for me, it's not even particularly close. Um, it's kind of like there's eight movies that are varying degrees of great to me. And uh, this one is number nine quite a bit farther down so i don't know if i see it again i might have a different opinion uh but and i will see it again because tarantino's a must buy when it comes out on blu-ray oh, of course yeah. every tarantino movie i'm not gonna stop now um and i'll watch it again when it comes out on blu-ray but yeah it's it's not my favorite by any means and so my final question before we wrap it up with Tarantino supposedly like going out saying he's only going to make 10 films, this was number nine next his potentially his last film we're going to get if it like pattern follows in the next three to five years, what would you like to see Tarantino close out on just you personally, not so much as like, Oh, this would like cap off his career really well. Like what would you, if you could sit down with Tarantino and, and he's like, I'm going to take like Mike Scott, I'm going to, listen to you like what do you think i should do what would you like to see tarantino end on i'd really like to see him go back to something like reservoir dogs i'd like to see him make a tight crime film that comes in at between 90 and 100 minutes has no fat and is honestly made i'd like to see him limit himself i'd like to see him cap his budget at like Ten million dollars, and and honestly, go work with Blumhouse. Go sign up with Jason Blum, and, and, and just do something tight, efficient. You know, like what we're seeing from guys like Jordan Peele. Just something that is back to the roots of what made me love him in the first place so much, which is these efficient tight, nasty little crime films like Reservoir Dogs, like True Romance, like Pulp Fiction. I want to see that Tarantino again. I want to see him go out on the 
I created the, you know, I helped create the indie boom and I'm going to go out showing all you motherfuckers how to make indie movies again. Um, that's what I'd love to see. How about yeah, you? I, I'm totally on the same boat. I mean, I want him to not make the Star Trek film. That would just be a little too much for his last film. Like if, like if, if he does that, make an 11th film, like, please, I don't want like, I'm not the biggest Star Trek fan. It's like, I just want something accessible. I mean, I think it, he would try and make it accessible, but I want something that's like that nice throwback to a, a genre, like a, an era of filmmaking, like when he just began, like kind of, let's go full circle on this, a nice tight script. Uh, I mean, yeah, something akin to Reservoir Dogs. Like this is, this is what we want. I don't need a big budget. I don't need all this flashy stylized stuff to make a great film. And I think, and he doesn't need to prove that to anyone. Like he's a like phenomenal filmmaker. I mean, despite that, I don't like some of his films and I didn't like once upon a time in Hollywood. He is an excellent filmmaker. When he, when he dies, his filmography will be remembered and studied and, and just in like all the, anything that all the, contributions to pop culture that he's had like he will be studied his legacy is solidified and i would just like him to go off on this big note of like i still like i still got it like i could come back it when i'm eight like 80 years old and still make an amazing film and 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 want that and I, that's what i want him to end on it's just like pretty much what you said that that very tight streamlined narrative that shows that tarantino has still got it and we can come full circle with it yeah, exactly. All right, so Mike, I guess that concludes our Tarantino episode. We are coming in just shy of two hours, which I didn't really know. I knew this was going to be a long conversation, but I didn't know it was going to be that long. And I've had a blast the whole time. It's like it's like the uh, Seven Samurai in the theaters. It, it didn't feel like two hours to me. No, it went fast, man. It went by quick. All right, and so uh, where can I know we did this last time, but where can the the people find uh, follow you in case they're not on social media or anything like that? So I am one of the many co-hosts of the Dana Buckler Show. So seek out that podcast. I co-host a segment called the 20th Century Movie Club, where we recommend movies from before the year 2000. You can follow me on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Hibachi Justice. Um, those are kind of the best places to find me. So check me out there. All right, great. And Mike, thank you again for coming on. I, I, I'm definitely have some ideas kicking around that I want to have you back on. Yeah, maybe we'll have a, like a Star Wars conversation and talk about the Last Jedi sometime soon, or, or maybe in December when the new movie comes out. But uh, no, I always love having have you on the show. And and uh, here's to, to many more episodes. But for that, guys, that concludes this episode of Amateur Tours. Thanks again for always supporting the show and listening in. And as always, we'll see you next time. <laughs>